I said, I had a six month old baby and I just finished my PhD. And she said, so wait, back up. You finished your PhD and you, but you have a six month old baby. And I said, yeah. And she was like, I said, but he didn't really sleep. So I kind of had to like write <laughs> during his 45 minute naps. And she said, okay, you're hired. I will find money. You can be my postdoc. So I was like, okay. <laughs> Hi. Hello. 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 And welcome to Architecting. Hi, welcome to Architecting. Hey, Adam, who's on the podcast today? Oh, hey. So today we have a landscape architect. Well, an architect, landscape architect, biker, uh, just cool person. So we have Louise Bordelon, and she is the department chair of the landscape architecture program at CU Denver uh, College of Architecture and Planning. And uh, yeah, how do we how do we meet Louise? Uh, last year during the the summer camps we did last year, the high school architecture summer camps, we asked her to be a guest lecturer. We were trying to focus it on biodiversity and kind of opening their eyes to the related fields of architecture. And she did an amazing lecture. And I, honestly, it was literally one of the students' favorite lectures in their like feedback survey. Um, I think she did a fantastic job. She seems really cool. Yeah. And and she I was sitting next to her after it and she was like I'd, something about like yeah, I'd like to come on your podcast and I was like, "Yes, come on the podcast." <laughs> uh she just has a very varied background growing up in South Africa, starting off in architecture, moving to landscape architecture and and finally finishing up her PhD and just has a a really interesting story and uh gets into the more uh, academic side uh, of the profession and what you can do there. But yeah, give it a listen. Nice, excited. But first, here's a few messages from our sponsors. Hey, we're happy to be sponsored by Modern in Denver Magazine. For over a decade, they've been crafting fantastically curated content on Colorado designers and projects, spreading the gospel of good design within our region. And I love how the goal of Modern in Denver aligns with the goal of this podcast, to better build up and connect the community of Colorado designers. So go buy a copy of the magazine at your local bookstand, subscribe to their weekly email list, and follow them on Instagram. Check it out. And now, back to the show. Well, let's let's dive in. So first and maybe only structured question here is, uh, who are you? I was thinking about that. And the short answer is that I'm a landscape architecture educator and mm. a cultural geographer, but I have a lot of different personalities. So I'm Louise the mountain biker, Louise the mom, Louise the wife, Louise the academic, Louise the immigrant. Mm. So a lot of different, yeah, a lot of different people and they all fight for attention time <laughs> and clothing choice <laughs> yeah that's funny i was gonna say that fits with your with your resume i, I think you might have the most degrees of anybody that has been on the show <laughs> i don't know if that's a good or a bad thing <laughs> so so where did that all start did did were you born wearing all those hats where did you come from and what what was the kind of environment you grew up in so i grew up in cape town in south africa and People there just 
don't wear shoes as much and we kind of <laughs> literally we or literally, figure, yeah, yeah. literally we just don't wear shoes as much actually i did this i did a shoe study for a, a bike shoe company and they said i had like the widest most stable feet that ever <laughs> that ever measured and like taken scans of and i was like maybe that's because i just didn't wear shoes as a kid but it's a very temperate climate, so it's a Mediterranean climate. We don't have heating, we don't have cooling, and you just kind of, like when it's hot, you get in the pool. And when it's cold, you put on extra sweaters and you're just cold. <laughs> yeah. So people don't have central heating. It's just way too expensive. And it's not really necessary. So. What did your parents do? What, what were you kind of surrounded by growing up? My dad is a chemical engineer, huh. and he worked at an oil refinery huh. his whole life. And his father was a really well-known sports personality. Huh. So he kind of grew up in a, a family that was very well-known. And uh, my mom's dad was a farmer. He worked for the railways, but then he was a farmer, and they farmed macadamia nuts. Mm. They had a big fire, and so they lost the farm. But my mom, she pretty much stayed home and, and raised my sister and I. Mm. And so was there still a farm to go to when you were young? Like, did you live in a pretty urbanized area of Cape Town? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, when I was very young, we were actually in Durban. That's where I was born. And there was no farm to go to, but we would go to my grandfather's house. And it's like the eastern coast of South Africa. So everything's pretty tropical. Hmm. So, like, he had all these weird contraptions like this. He had this long contraption to pick the avocados because the avocado trees were like, 50 feet tall wow, huh. and the avocados were like the size of footballs <sighs> and he had this weird contraption thing that he had made he made all these weird contraptions <sighs> where you'd like pull a string and then it would cut the avocado and huh. it'd fall into this little basket and he used to mail them to us he'd put them in the mail and then by the time they got to us they were ripe wow it's like a massive package yeah, yeah. And um, guacamole for weeks yeah and the impatience they had these huge impatience and they had these big poppers. And here I see them in like the, these tiny yeah, little... Yeah, what is that? It's a plant. It's a tropical plant. And you see them sometimes here. And not really here. It's too cold. But it's just like everything's bigger. Hmm. Sort of sort of hmm. like the rainforest kind of hmm. thing. But there are these little poppers. And we visited there. I have memories of visiting there a few times. But my dad's parents both passed away before I was born. Hmm. So I didn't really get to know them. Hmm. But yeah, holidays were like at the beach. Always at the beach. So staying in a house and, and swimming all the time, swimming, swimming. Like we had a swimming pool. I swam as a kid every single day. I played a lot of sport. Hmm. I played collegiate water polo. Oh, wow. And A lot of swimming. Yeah, and really a lot of, and we swam in the ocean a lot. I did life. I was a lifeguard. Oh, wow. So we're just in the sun a lot and outside a lot and swimming all the time. Just, yeah, that's what we did. So what did that look like when you came to kind of university age and and how did you get set up? Or was it was it a sort of like European model of, of high school where you kind of started choosing a path no, earlier? No, or? I mean, uh, yeah, you do have to choose. When you apply to university, you, you choose your degree. You can't choose, you can't like declare later on. Hmm. So when you're 17 and you're filling out your university applications, you're choosing if you want to be an architect, an engineer business film and media or whatever it's not really great because it kind of it pushes you in so narrowly in mm. the very beginning and i was 
actually, I was given, I was offered a collegiate, I had a collegiate sports scholarship uh. to play water polo at Stellenbosch University. And I was enrolled in civil engineering. And my mom said, are you sure this is what you want to do? And I was like, I don't know. But she said, why don't you take... So I had an opportunity to go work in the UK for a year hmm. at a prep school, hmm. like a gap year. And so I did that. I went to this prep school and that was fabulous. I had two friends who were doing something similar and we traveled all around Europe for two months on about a thousand dollars. So we, we slept in a lot of train stations and ate like corn from a can, <laughs> but we saw everything and we mm. went everywhere. And then I came back and I, I started at the University of Cape Town in architecture. Hmm. So what was that like the, uh, the rebel civil engineering or something, or, or how did you choose architecture? I think I thought it was like the fusion of art and science. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That gets a lot of people. But, but also, I think, I, I don't know if you've ever seen like Architect Barbie. She has <laughs> like a black pinstripe suit. Oh. And I think I imagined myself as like a creative, a creative, but still in business. Huh, yeah. Because the idea of business really didn't appeal to me. And so South Africa is kind of strange in that people are generally discouraged from pursuing creative careers because there's no money in it. Hmm. Everyone is told. And people would tell you, do accounting or engineering, otherwise you will not get a job. Hmm. And when I was applying for jobs, even jobs that were with an architecture undergrad, even jobs that were nothing to do with accounting and business and engineering, only took people with those degrees. Hmm. It was sort of like, a, okay, well, this way I get to be a profession, but I still get to be creative. Mm, yeah. And what about, I mean, I've never been to South Africa. My, my business partner uh, spent a good amount, chunk of time in, in Cape Town or in South Africa. But, you know, it, it seems like in such an interesting urban environment and architectural kind of meshing of, of highs and lows and, and sort of different things. Did you feel that impact on, on you as you were going into school or on your education, kind of growing up in that urban environment? Yeah, I mean, there's the reality of architecture in South Africa is that you are primarily working with and in communities that have nothing. Huh. So they're like shanty towns or slums that are on sand dunes and you're trying to solve issues of like low-cost housing without displacing people. So it's really, really complicated. But there's that side of it. Mm -hmm. And then the other side of it is like high-end residential overlooking the ocean right. with like parabolic roofs. Right. And there's a lot of really beautiful design and there's a design aesthetic that's definitely very South African. And Cape Town has the Cape Dutch vernacular, which is like the really thick walls and the thatched roofs which work really well in the climate. But in terms of there's a lot of housing and a lot of public and urban parks that are not really parks at all. Mm. They're kind of like places. I did get to work on the Grand Parade in Cape Town, which is where Nelson Mandela gave his first speech when he was released from prison mm. in 1991. And that was a pretty cool project because it's a place that actually I mean it means a lot to the country but it's just totally different 
Yeah. Like even our office that when I worked at, I worked at ARG Architects with some really cool people. It was on the fourth floor of a building and we had no AC. So like we just opened all the windows <laughs> so that the, like the wind would come through and cool down everything. But then of course, papers just were flying <laughs> everywhere all the time. It's just really different. You can't really explain what it's like. But I think in terms of being in school, I don't think that was ever really made clear. You know, that like we were still being trained as architects, like with a capital A, but there was always this weird, sometimes we'd like go out to the site in like a slum and they'd be like, okay, well, this is, this is the type of thing you're going to be designing, but then we never actually designed for it. Mm. We'd always go back to the studio and then like design a center for architecture in the forest mm -hmm. with like beautiful tree, like, you know, trees that go through seven floors and things like that. So it didn't really make sense to mm -hmm. me. I don't think I saw a clear trajectory. And then when you got out, where did your work kind of fall in that dichotomy? So when I graduated with my architectural studies degree, I was pretty convinced I didn't want to be an architect. No, <laughs> really, nice. really. I had a really terrible time in my third year. I just, I had some really bad reviews. I almost failed the one studio. It, it was just terrible. Hmm. It was, and looking back, I kind of wish I'd sort of pushed back harder on the faculty. Like they weren't there. Nobody helped us. There was no professor with you in studio. It was like, this is studio time, your time to work. And you hmm. had to just kind of figure things out. And there was no guidance hmm. and I don't know if that was specific to like individual professors or if it was just kind of the blanket attitude hmm. and so I decided to do a so I did a ski season I went <laughs> to Tahoe and I taught skiing some more cane corn and, and like uh, yeah. yeah and then wow. <laughs> yeah there was there was actually a lot of canned corn it was <laughs> it was on the cheap but the dollar is so strong compared to the South African rand that It's kind of a thing people do in their summer vacation is they'll come over here, work at ski resorts, save all uh, their money, and then they go back and the trip kind of pays for itself and mm. you sort of come out with a little bit. Interesting. So I did that. And then I went to, I did a post-grad management studies hmm. diploma. That's not on my resume, I don't think. I actually, I think it is. Uh, did you get a little scared with too much art? You said, I, I need a little more business or? I did. Yeah. Well, it was, it was like corporate finance and marketing and um, <sighs> all of those things because I realized like I couldn't find a job. Really? Yeah. And so I did that. And then I don't really know what I wanted to do. I went, so I came back to the US and I worked at Loon Mountain on, in New Hampshire. Huh. And then I stayed and worked in Maine at Bar Harbor, Mount Desert Island. Huh. It's a really cool place. And everyone talks about the quality of light. Huh. <laughs> and it's what, like the first, the first, one of the first places on the East Coast to see the sunrise. And then I went back to South Africa and I managed to get myself a job. And I moved to Johannesburg, hmm. which is a place I never want to live ever again. And I started working at a company that did exhibitions. Hmm sort of like sales and marketing exhibitions or trade shows, really. Mm. And I did estimating for them. So I was working out like <laughs> how much things would cost for people would rent the stuff for a booth. And that was pretty terrible. <laughs> so I quit that job and I started working for my friend who was running. He'd started his own like PR firm. And I jumped in and I helped. We made this 
book. So it was like a leather bound book. And then you opened it and it was a couple of stories at the beginning. And then it had, it was hollowed out and it had, it was for Cadbury's, the chocolate. So I made like 25 of these books, basically like architecture school comes in handy, right? Like, can you print this paper and then like stick it on perfectly? So it looks like a real book. Mm. And I found someone who could bind these books and I like, yeah, everything was like super tight. It was like building a, a oh. model. They were like really popular in prisons. And uh. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we made 25 of them and they were for like a special launch for like some select clients. Oh. And then the friend said, wow, I'm actually, I'm really impressed. Like, do you want to, do you want to carry on working here? Because I thought you just didn't kind of take life seriously because you quit your other job and you didn't really seem to care, but like. But this was really good. And so I started working there and I worked there for a a while. And then I sort of started thinking about going back to school and getting a master's because I, and I wasn't sure what, I I mean, I had the architecture part of it. So I thought about urban planning and Mm. I went to go meet someone at the University of Urban Planning and talk to them. And I was like, oh, this sounds very policy related. I Mm. don't think this is ready for me. And then. And this was all before you had a. You, you had any job in architecture before that job that you yeah. opened all the windows? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, nice. No, this is like way before. Like, I was like, no, I don't want to be an architect. And so then I kind of, then I was like, well, I, I found this landscape architecture firm that was looking for someone. Hmm. And so I, I went there and they said, okay, you can start Monday. And I was like, okay. Oh. And then I, I enrolled part-time at the University of Pretoria and I, took classes to get the equivalent of the Bachelors of Landscape Architecture using some of my credits from architecture. So it was sort of, hmm. it's a different system, but it's like an honors. So it's, it was basically another 18 months. Hmm. I took plants and soil and geomorphology and I took two landscape studios and I took a couple of other classes to get up to speed. And that was, yeah, I was like, oh, well, this is it. This is where huh. I fit. And that, that's what kind of checked the boxes for you. Yeah, I think so. But also I was suddenly working and paying for my own education, which meant I was doing it because I wanted to do it. Mm. And so it was different. Yeah. Yeah. But I really, I mean, I did really well. I really enjoyed it. I think the plants part of it was interesting for me. So there was enough of like, there was the design, but then there was also plants and there were systems and rivers and culture and other things to think about that Mm. I hadn't ever really explored in architecture, maybe because I wasn't in the right school Mm -hmm. or space. And it was more about a whole lot of different things coming together rather than understanding context as being much richer than I felt like at the University of Cape Town, all I really understood about context was like, what do the buildings on either side look like? Mm -hmm. Like, let's continue those lines straight across. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And then has to be nice in in some ways of of the sort of maybe speed at which you can practice landscape architecture in some way like if you're not dependent on more complex structures and things like that and you're able to sometimes do quicker interventions and public space and paving and plants and maybe see it quicker you know i I don't know i don't know that it's quicker i mean every firm that i worked for in South Africa, the, so the first firm I worked at, I was working on the Taung World Heritage Site, which mm. is where Child's Skull was found. It's close to Marapeng, which is the cradle of humankind. Mm. And 
that was super complex because it was there were like multiple tribal groups that were involved as well as the local government and it it was so complex it was awful i still don't know if that project is built hmm. but in terms of kind of thinking it's more like i think for me it's more like you can be hands on but you can also be hands off hmm. so like my one of my first little things that i did was redo my mom's garden mm-hmm. which isn't really what landscape architects always do but it was really rewarding and fun and i got to see it change right and i think that's one of the one of the interesting things about it is that it doesn't have to be perfect because you install a landscape and it's going to change and it's going to look better hopefully over time but i just felt like it was more kind of I don't know. It just worked. Yeah. I don't know. Like it's really difficult to kind of <laughs> yeah. say in words. So what was the next? What, <laughs> I draw better than I speak. <laughs> I get that. Yeah, I definitely get that. So what was the the next big sort of itch? Then like you're not you're you're not in South Africa right now. So what oh, okay. happened? Okay. Yeah. So <laughs> my brother-in-law at the time went to business school in Boston. And I saw the opportunities that he had after that. And I was like, mm, I kind of want to study somewhere else. Hmm. And I think I always kind of wanted to leave South Africa. I found some of the safety and security issues really stressful. And hey, this episode is brought to you in part by Signature Doors and Windows and Modern Denver Magazine. Now on to the show. So... I was like, well, I'm going to have to get a scholarship because I can't afford to pay for it myself. And I applied for a Fulbright scholarship hmm. and I've never gotten a scholarship before, other than the collegiate water polo one, never gotten a scholarship before. And I really didn't think I would get it, but I did. Hmm. So it's actually, I don't know if I told you the story about the Halfbright. No. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So it's, it's a Fulbright scholarship, but it's actually a Halfbright. <laughs> Because the what sort they, of dim. Yeah, 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 the sort of dim. What they do is the U.S. Embassy in South Africa has enough money to send like three people oh, to wow. full ride to like Columbia or Harvard or like Caltech. But they choose, they select 12 people and they apply on your behalf to state schools hmm. and they get state schools to offer you like tuition assistantships or additional funding and so they sort of say to you like you can you can only go if a school offers you that funding LSU offered me the funding and I said, I'm not going to live there. <laughs> yeah, I was wondering like what's that transition like to Louisiana? Yeah. So I then I then I called around a whole bunch of schools and they said, Oh yeah, we accepted you, we accepted you, we accepted you. But they said, but you have Fulbright, so you have funding. You don't need funding. And Fulbright said, I tried to make the case that I really was more of a city person and that Penn would be a much better fit for me. <laughs> and they said, sorry, LSU's ranked really highly and they gave you money and they want you. And now the rankings aren't a thing, thank goodness, anymore. But it actually was a really fabulous place to study, hmm. both as an immersive experience of the American South and as as a landscape architect. And I managed to get out with no student oh, wow. loans. So there's no ways I could have done it without. And like that's one of the reasons I give back to LSU, because huh. 
is an opportunity that like I could not have made happen on my own. It's <laughs> so interesting to be get like to like be forced into a, a university essentially. Yeah. Uh, but you know, the interesting thing is that Fulbright is about cultural exchange. Mm. And that's what it was. It really I learned I learned way more than I could ever impart of my knowledge of the world or whatever you're supposed to do. But I I really underestimated what people were like and I think I was very judgmental Mm, mm -hmm. and but like when I met my my now husband's family here I am this like um, first of all I'm older than him I'm from South Africa so like I'm foreign and I have vastly different political views than they do and they just were just like oh come on in and be Mm -hmm. our child and they just (laughs) accepted me like every time I went there I had my wild and crazy dog with me and they were always just like oh come on and like my dog's counter surfing and they're totally Mm. fine with it and they definitely accepted me like their own from the very beginning and I don't think there's that many cultures or places that would do that Hmm. especially with someone who's so different than they are yeah but I mean they were like you know Jason's dad was like do you have like supermarkets (laughs) (laughs) so yeah it's interesting yeah, I feel like especially with the South, it's it's easy for me to have a a strong opinion of of what that's like and not go there a just because I don't like humidity and heat and but it, it can be pretty um, bad. But uh, so then at LSU, yeah, what what were the things that that sort of opened your eyes and that you gained from that that was was unexpected? Well, obviously that that first part is the the culture part of it, like the really really rich culture which it's in Baton Rouge yeah it's in Baton Rouge and it's I mean I initially I really resisted anything purple and gold (laughs) (laughs) but you know by the time I left like I'm a Tigers fan you know I love football (laughs) and I think also uh, that landscape and the way understanding the human impact on the landscape and natural processes and the kind of land coastal land loss due to the like levying of the river and understanding just the wide understanding that it's not like each place is not just about one isolated pocket it's about an entire region mm-hmm. and the Mississippi Delta has formed that entire region and now it's like shut into this tiny little hmm. piece and hmm. so there's lots of really fun things to explore and places to go and and also then there's like the other layer of people and culture and it's great. I mean, I, and I also, the landscape architecture school there is, was the first time in my life that I, I arrived in a studio and the professor was there from 1 PM till 6 PM. Like hmm. when the studio class yeah. happened. When they're contracted to right. be there. Yeah. And they were like sat down with me and gave me a desk crit. The first professor I ever had was Christy Sheremy and I was like, this is amazing. And I did such amazing work. And I was like, my project was great. I was totally invested in it. And I started to think in different ways. And I was like, oh, this is what education can be. Hmm. Like, this is how it's supposed to be. Oh, now I get it. So hmm. that was a big part of, I think, why I like, wanted to go into teaching. Because I wanted students to have that positive experience rather than being told, like, yeah, whatever. Yeah. yeah. And you, you got two degrees from there? Is that right? Yeah, I stayed. So around about the time I finished my MLA, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I didn't necessarily want to go back to South Africa. 
And I'd started racing bikes. And I was kind of like, eh, maybe I should stick around and race bikes a little bit. <laughs> but also I, I, did, I did think that I wanted to teach. And mm. being an immigrant, I realized I was going to have to have, like, you won't get prioritized over a citizen. Like, you have to have an extra degree. Like, you always have to be one better, right? Otherwise... You're like four better, aren't you? You have like a... So I was like, okay, well, maybe I should just do a PhD in geography. <laughs> they said... So I didn't get an assistantship initially, and I was like, okay, well, and I just kept, like, kept asking, I guess kept showing up, like, Is, did somebody pull out at the last minute? Can I have that assistantship? And eventually they said, okay, you can have this assistantship. And I started in cultural geography, hmm. and I, so it's geography, my PhD is geography and anthropology, but I had very little knowledge of geography before that. I loved geography in high school, definitely my favorite subject. I don't know why I didn't hmm. do an undergrad in geography, but I don't know if like if you know anything about cultural geographers, but like no. Carl Sauer is like I won't say father because it's very paternalistic, but he's like the parent of human geography in in the United States and I guess the world. And on the first day, I was like, "Who's Carl Sauer?" You know, and here I'm a PhD student, so sort of a steep learning curve. But it was really I sort of found there's all these things that I love about it, like all these quirky ideas and people studying things like prairie dogs and garden ornaments and mm. bathtub madonnas. And I was like, oh, this is cultural geography. It's also, a lot of it is also landscape architecture. Hmm. Yeah, I was going to ask, like, what did that layer on to landscape architecture for you? And how did that change kind of your trajectory? Mm. Well, geography is about anything that involves a time and a place. So it's really about anything. Also, I think the a lot of our work was about the Mississippi River and in landscape architecture and in geography. And so the two are just kind of the same thing. Mm. Right? So you're talking about hydrology and river systems and processes, but then you're also talking about people who live on the bayous and like the Acadians and mm you know, food and every, you know, everything. Yeah. So an army corps of engineer and it, it's intrinsically linked. Right. So it's really like those, like back in South Africa, where you were talking about, that was the joy of landscape architecture for you, of being able to integrate all these other kind of forces. Yeah. And then, there you go. And then you just into, figured it out for me. <laughs> and, then, and then being able to get into, yeah, really understanding those forces instead of directing the forces, I guess. I mean, I wanted to do my dissertation on the Mississippi River, on the Great River Road, but it's very vast and sparse and very structured. And I think eventually I ended up doing my dissertation on the Natchez Trace Parkway. But it, also I was using representation. So I went in saying I want to use drawing as a method of inquiry. And I did do that to some degree, but for the most part. So I started looking at historic photos. I looked at illustrations, historic images, photos, postcards, and then tourist photos, and then Instagram and other types of images. And I used those, I mean, I used GIS to figure out where those images were taken, because the Natchez Trace Parkway has mile markers. Like, well, what is that? I don't, I don't know what oh, that is. okay. Oh. Please, yeah. So the Natchez Trace Parkway is the least known national park of America. <laughs> <laughs> it runs from Natchez, Mississippi to Nashville, Tennessee. It is a 444-mile road without stop signs, and it has a 50-mile-an-hour speed limit. Hmm. And it's terribly boring. 
the only people that drive it are the newlyweds and the nearly deads. <sighs> oh, really? <laughs> and cyclists. So we did a lot of cycling on the Natchez Trace because it's great for bikes because of the low speed limit and there's like mm. not a whole lot of traffic. So we like, you know, ride up now and I was like, I think some, in some part of my brain, I was like, oh yeah, this is great. I can do field work and my bike and train at the same time. <laughs> Always trying to like layer on more things. <laughs> and then, so I started looking at these images of the places along this road and the road itself has a really interesting history, but the, the images showed us where people visit because images have the ability to influence tourist behavior. And it's sort of, there's a geographer called John Ari who calls it the hermeneutic circle, where we see a practice so that we act that practice out and then we influence more people to enact mm. that practice. Mm. And then, so in other words, the great uncle who went to Rome comes back and shows you a slideshow and then you go to Rome mm. and you visit the same places. Mm. And then you take a picture of yourself in that place to prove that you were there, mm. which is called like embodied interaction. And that is the original selfie. Mm. So it's like a self-esteem thing. People back on the grand, on the grand tour sketching yeah, themselves. Exactly. And, uh, yeah. It started with the grand tour. And I mean, that was, that was the, the kind of impetus behind the national parks. We mm. can, it was an economic strategy. We can get people to travel at home and, we can keep them here and this land isn't good for farming. So we'll just call it a national park. And then we'll have Albert Bierstadt paint something beautiful and put like fake light and make it look very romantic. And then people will want to go there <laughs> and they'll have to get there by railway, which we own. Mm. Right. So the railways worked with the national park service to like advertise these mm. places. It's like, especially Glacier National Park is one of the big ones. And then also the Burlington, Northern Santa Fe, the Grand Canyon had one. I mean, you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's all, people think politics and corruption only just started. <laughs> like it's been around. Yeah. Yeah, right. I get really interested in when, when people go far in academia and then what happens after, you know, you get, you get so further and further into it. Then you get pigeonholed and, and you know can't a find a real point, job. You, were, <laughs> you, you worked at a, a firm again afterwards and you didn't just stay in academia. So what happened when you graduated or finished that PhD, what did you get smacked with? So, what yeah, kind of real life? What I got smacked with was a six-month-old baby. Oh. <laughs> um, so there's nothing like being pregnant to motivate you to finish uh, your PhD. Uh, as you're trying to bike down a, a long road. <laughs> right. yeah. no, I, I was not a field work by that point. Finish, I, I was like, I, don't know, I'm, I think I'm going to take a break from racing for a while. But Fulbright has... A stipulation that when you graduate, you return to your home country for oh. at least two years. So at that point, I was married. We had two dogs. We had a six-month-old baby. And we had to pack everything up and go to South Africa. Wow. How long had you been gone for? Oh, I got to Baton Rouge in 2008. Mm. And it was the end of 2015. Oh, oh, yeah, recently, yeah. So we packed everything up. We... We were going to put everything in storage, but then we stored it at my in-laws' house. And they're so nice. Those get they pe are those so people nice. there until like we got back from South Africa. We're like, "Where's our barbecue?" <laughs> my father-in-law was like, "Oh, I took it to the fishing camp." And we're like, "Where's the freezer?" Oh, it's it's full of fish. <laughs> so I'm like, "Where are the wheels? Like, where are my bike wheels?" Oh, like I'll buy you other ones. I'm like, "Okay, well, it's cheaper than a car." It yeah. is, yeah. <laughs> so 
we went to South Africa. Unfortunately, um, my husband is a controls, he's a software and controls engineer, and he had met someone at a conference and that person happened to be hiring. So off we moved to Stellenbosch and the only place you can really work once you're at that point is the university. Mm. So mm-hmm. I started looking for a postdoc opportunity. I, I was going to try and teach at the University of Cape Town. I really didn't know what I was doing. I met a woman who is a professor of geography at the University of Stellenbosch. And I was just sort of telling her about what I did. And I said, I had a six month old baby and I just finished my PhD. And she said, so wait, back up. You finished your PhD and you, but you have a six month old baby. And I said, yeah. And she was like, I said, but he didn't really sleep. So I kind of had to like write <laughs> during his 45 minute naps. And she said, okay, you're hired. I will find money. You can be my postdoc. So I was like, okay. <laughs> So while I was there, I wrote and published articles, mm. which is, that's what a postdoc really does in her field of study is kind of more like tourism and winelands tourism. So I've published a little bit in winelands tourism using the same methodology I had in my PhD. So uh, we looked at tourist images on Instagram and discovered that there's really only three or four wine farms that people visit, that like mm. everyone visits. Mm. And then the others don't get nearly as much attention. And those big ones are mostly foreign owned and Hmm. it was sort of like a study for the tourism board so there was that and then she once I'd done a couple for her in her area of interest she said okay you can do whatever you want so I started writing about mountain biking (laughs) because more more research yeah Yeah. more research (laughs) so I published like an article about Stellenbosch as a mountain biking destination. And then I did an article on the Cape Epic bike race, which I don't know if you're familiar with, but it's like the Tour de France of mountain biking. Hmm. It's an eight day stage race. And I started writing a little bit more about women in mountain biking. And I did, I did some more field work and that, that work, I just turned into a chapter for a book on, it's called mountain biking in society. Hmm. And that's coming out soon. I don't know when. Hmm. I'm not the editor. I just sent a chapter in. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So, but now you're here. So what happened? Oh, well. <laughs> How many um, more stops do we have between? <laughs> I can't keep up. <laughs> um, we went. So my husband's company had an office. They were a startup from South Africa, but they had an office in California and they decided that was too expensive. So they moved to Denver and people were having trouble getting visas to move here and they couldn't. So they said, well, if you guys want to go to Denver, you can. So obviously again, I was like, okay, well, well, let's just go. So we'd been in South Africa almost like it was two and a half years at that Mm. point. And we flew back. My son was almost three. We moved back. We moved back to where my in-laws are. And in, so now I'm in rural Louisiana with a two-year-old and Jason's here and the housing, housing market's crazy. We, he found this rental house and then it was just ridiculous. They wanted all these caveats. They wanted like a thousand dollars per dog. And we were like, yes, yes, yes. And then eventually Jason just said, no, like we should just buy a house. Mm-hmm. But I was in Louisiana. So actually the house we have, I didn't see before we bought mm. don't let the architect uh, see the house first yeah. yeah yeah we had a great realtor though which is sort of a funny story because jason phones me and says hey i met a realtor and i'm like oh boy okay cool tell me about it and he said well 
I said, did you like, did you look it up or was it a recommendation of a friend? And he said, no, I met him at this place called Tap and Dough. <laughs> I was like, that sounds like a bar. And he's like, yeah, I met this guy at a bar. It's great. They have the great. best realtors there. Yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. And I, I was like, this is really bad, Jason. You're really gullible. Like, this sounds like a bad <laughs> idea. And he says, no, I asked the barman if he's like a, if he's like a legit guy. And he said, yes. And I was just thinking, oh, no, yeah, this is going to be time. terrible. Yeah, right. It's going to be terrible. But our real uh, real estate agent was fabulous. And um, he picked up pretty quickly what I like and what I don't like. And so steered Jason away from all these other weird and wonderful things. And yeah, we bought a house. So that's where we were. And I started looking for a job. CSU had a tenure track position open and they shortlisted me, but then I didn't get an interview. I had I'd applied at a couple of other places. I had an interview at Ball State in Indiana, mm-hmm. and I had an interview at Iowa State mm-hmm. in Ames. But, I mean, it wasn't really feasible with, like, a little kid to live that far apart. And people said, I, I looked to see you, Denver, and people were like, you'll never get a job there. That Like, the faculty has been there for ever and nobody's gonna leave yeah so i was like okay well started trying to find a job and i really couldn't find anything and i think phd is an issue so i got turned down by the whole foods coffee bar (laughs) it got to a point where we were so desperate we're like okay i'm gonna have to start working at the home depot because we can't afford like we can't make our mortgage we can't any of that stuff so yeah that was probably my low point when like whole foods was like sorry when you're so, again, when you're so specific in that academic yeah. track, and but then so then didn't you work at Dig Studio and yeah? So I I reached out to a former professor and I was like, I don't know what to do. Like, do you know anyone in Denver? I can't. I feel like I just keep submitting my resume and portfolio, and nobody's hiring. And I just your portfolio is really it's really difficult to tell what someone's like from a yeah. portfolio until you meet them. And so he said. Let me put you in touch with some people, right? Because I think I've gotten every single job in my entire life through a network, Mm, right? Like mm -hmm. a connection. So like, why don't you have coffee with this person and see where it goes? So I had coffee with Alison Mendenhall, who at the time was at Design Workshop. Mm. And she's now at Sasaki. And I kind of just told her about what I do. And she said, okay, well, let me put you in touch with like a couple of people. So I met with a really interesting woman, Lisa Eldred from the Botanic Gardens. Hmm. And she was like, I don't really have anything right now, but things come up and things go along and I'll keep you in mind. And then I met with Gretchen Wilson from Dig and she said, they kind of needed someone to just kind of be like a pitch hitter, just jump in and do whatever. Hmm. And I was like, okay, sure, I'll do it. But I think they weren't really sure about me. And I think, so they said, well, can you do like 16 hours a week? So I was, I was like, okay. And then at the same time, I went to a review. I was on a jury at CU Denver because I'd reached out to Anne Kamara. And she was like, oh, well, you can come be on a jury. So I did that. And then I think somebody pulled out last minute and they needed a studio instructor. So... I taught as a lecturer mm. for an eight-week vertical studio, and I was working at Dig 16 hours a week. Hmm. And then Dig sort of was like, well, can you be here for 24? And then, like, are you interested in going full-time? And, and so, Yeah, then how long did that last before you got the position? I, I'm always like, I don't, I don't know if I should tell people this. but So I was a lecturer, and then I started as a two-thirds-time instructor uh, at CU. Huh. But what happened was Anne asked me if I could teach the 
graphics class or studio one. And I was like, yeah, and I can teach graphics. And she was like, oh, okay. <laughs> and it was sort of fortuitous, like two people left. And uh. so they needed, they needed warm bodies to teach. And I mean, that's what I've been teaching. I, I taught at LSU, like intro to graphics and, and studio. So I did that. But I said, is there any chance it could be more full time? Because, and I don't know, like, when you're working as a lecturer and you're working in another job, it's like having three jobs. Yes, yes. And it's like three headaches. Yeah. yeah. And at the time, my son was having, he has moderate hearing loss. Mm. So at this point, he has hearing aids and he can hear really well. And he knows how to connect his hearing aids to like the Nintendo via Bluetooth. And, uh, you know, he's like got it all figured out. But at the time, he was just going through, you have to get tested, like you have to, they wanted to do genetic testing and they wanted to, they had to have like an MRI and he had to, because they have to check you don't have tumors and what's causing the hearing loss because mm. he was born with perfect hearing. Oh, weird. He was sick and it was antibiotics, I think. But so he was having a lot of doctor's appointments, like a lot. So at least once a week, I had to drive to like Highlands Ranch or I don't know if you've ever been to the Children's Hospital North, yeah. North Campus. And they say it's Broomfield, but I swear you can see Fort Collins by yeah. the time you get there. It is so far away. So I was driving all over the place and yeah, I just, I didn't think I could manage doing both, especially not teaching two classes. So I started looking for other full-time jobs and I got offered a full-time position as a visiting professor at Oklahoma University. Mm. And then um, I said, I like, I have this full-time offer. Can you match it? Ah, and so they gave nice. me a two-thirds time instructor position. <laughs> I said, match it, match it. <laughs> Well, it pretty much was matched because yeah. I mean Oklahoma. That's funny. But then, what's your what's your role right now? Your... I'm the department chair. Yeah, yeah. So, so how long did you have to wait that out? <laughs> so I did that, and then um, about we had an interim. We had two failed chair searches, and Jorn Langhorst was the interim chair. And the dean asked me if I could serve as interim chair, and then I could be full time clinical teaching track. Mm. So I said, okay, sure, and. I did that and it was COVID and it was, it was pretty rough. And then at that point, the only way I could become tenure track, the line for the tenure, tenure, tenure track position was intended for the chair, mm. a new chair. And so it was like, well, can you be the chair? You can take that. Well, like you can apply for that position mm. and then be the chair. So yeah. So I said, okay. <laughs> Going for three, three quarters. To, it's a very three, long yeah. story. <laughs> No, nice. I, I mean, yeah, it's awesome. So now you're 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 there. You're the you're the boss. You're the person. You know, we met. I think I think I first met you. We were uh, it was during COVID, and we were on a Zoom call or something. And I thought you were living somewhere else at that point, even. But no, I was in my basement oh, yeah. in Arvada. Nice, yeah, nice. <laughs> I think we both had like kids running behind yeah. us. Yeah, but yeah, we we. Rebecca and I met you again when we were teaching the uh, architecture in the city uh, high school summer camp last summer, and we were we were teaching a studio, uh, well, a kind of week on on biodiversity and sort of raising awareness of issues of lack of biodiversity and having students create little habitats. And we got closer to the week and we figured out we don't know anything about biodiversity. And so luckily we, we got connected with you and, yeah. and you did a, a fabulous uh, lecture for us and, and helped us out. But it was great to see your passion and 
and kind of sort of how like practical it got, right? Like you're talking about the first project of garden for your mother, right? You like, you re-landscape your, your front yard as a kind of laboratory. And so kind of as chair and as an academic now, like where, where are you steering? Sometimes I feel like I'm not even steering. I'm just trying to float. Yeah. (laughs) I do. uh, So right now I have a manuscript contract. I'm, taking some of the work that I've done on the Natchez Trace. And one of the things that I figured out along the way is there's all these really cool people and places along the Natchez Trace that are not showcased and celebrated. So it's mostly a a white colonial history from between 1780 and 1820. And like, there's this whole mythical story about highway robbery Hmm. and like bandits on the trace. And it's, it's all kind of linked to boatmen from kind of the Ohio and Ohio, Kentucky, Tennessee area would float their things down the Mississippi River, sell all their wares, and then they'd walk back along the Natchez Trace. But the Natchez Trace has been around for a lot longer than that. So there's lots of Native Americans that have been like a big part of it. There's also a lot of women and people of color that have also lived in that area and have really interesting stories, Mm. and they're not really showcased. And that was sort of, yeah, one of the like kind of Louise, the PhD student, found, when I was on my bike, I found this place called the Elizabeth Female Academy. And then I started looking it up a little bit. And it's theoretically the first institution in the United States to grant degrees to women. Hmm. And I was so excited about it. And I like, barged into my PhD advisor's office. I'm like, guess what? I'm going to change the whole topic. And luckily, he's very... He's retired now, but he's very like level-headed and stoic person. He was like, no, Louise, like you need to calm down. <laughs> like, let's not do that. Let's put that aside. You can do that afterwards. So now I'm doing it afterwards. So I'm going to showcase some of these interesting places. And so I'm writing a book. Mm. And I have to tell people that because it's my, like, I call it my voluntary system of accountability. Mm. You know, so everyone knows about it. And then I'm writing a little bit on mountain biking. I'm partnering with physician who specializes in wellness at Anschutz and also a psychologist. And we are going to do some work on mountain biking and wellness and psychology. I don't know exactly where it's going to go yet, but I think it would be really fun to do it on like, look at, there's so many different things you could do. Look at, look at aging and the way people like feelings of safety or vulnerability in wilderness areas, things like that as well. So Mm. there's a whole lot of research in there. And then the biodiversity Part of it is kind of my ongoing living laboratory in my front yard and and also some covert scattering of wildflower <laughs> seeds in <laughs> other places that, yeah. You're welcome, yeah. yeah so that's kind of, yeah, that's where I am. <sighs> I love it. We've got, we've got so much. I mean, what did you say when I said, who are you? You said uh, so many hats. No, it was so many. I'm so many different people. So many different people. Person, yeah. Yeah. You know, we got that whole. It's exhausting whole though, right? Journey. It's like, yeah. it's like being a schizophrenic. How tiring that must right. be. Right. Yeah. So sometimes I feel, I mean, like, yeah, it's great, but it's also extremely chaotic. Right. When you, when you have so many interests and, and have pursued those each into degrees and things and to not have this is just me talking, not have enough energy to pursue all of them as far as I want to. But now you're, I don't want to jinx it or anything, but in, in at a stable position, right? <laughs> like, Theoretically, and, yeah. And I, so, we're never moving again. Yeah. yeah. I said, 
Jason, I was like, no, Jason, if we ever move, I'm leaving everything in this house. I am not packing up anything. The only place I could probably be convinced to move to is the mountains. Mm -hmm. My seven-year-old, we decided to try skiing this year, and we were really worried that it was not going to go well. But he took to it. He's a natural. Yeah, nice. Yeah, so I'm back on the slopes. I'll have to get some advice. I just took my six-year-old on Wednesday, and he'd been doing bunny runs and things, and uh, got him on a a full green. And that was, I sat up at the top of the lift for 45 minutes, just sat there and it was, it was a battle. Yeah. Uh, I was very calm for a very long time and right. then I was not calm. And yeah, luckily my wife swooped in, but we did have a couple, uh, uh, we had an experience like that once before. And then we were like, we're not doing this until he's older and mm. he can figure it out. But ski school was amazing. We put him in ski school for two days and then he just. Nice. Yeah. We did that, uh, the indoor lessons, oh, like yeah. 10 indoor lessons. And I think it worked, but it was last season. So it, it rubbed off, but, but anyway, yeah. So, so yeah, you're, you're, you're here now and you're here to stay just with all these, these different paths and interests and everything, what gets you the most excited on a sort of larger level of, of steering this department for the future? Like what, what's that sort of issue or what's the sort of thing that sets CU Denver's department and path apart from other schools? Well, we're a master's only program. And in some ways that allows us to be a little bit more nimble. We can switch gears, you know, fairly easily in terms of what and how we teach. And we're pretty reliant on the practice community. And I think that's one of, one of the best parts of my job that I like the most is networking with the practice community. And we just, well, I just created an advisory board for landscape architecture. And so far already, I mean, it's been hugely helpful just to have input, like, what are our students, what are our graduates missing? What are they really good at? What do you see from outside that isn't happening? What are you seeing more of in practice that we need to be preparing for? Mm. So I don't know. I mean, these aren't things that we can figure out in like one year or two years, but I think things like maybe students need to know a lot more about like phytoremediation or I think water quality is going to become mm. more and more important. So understanding what it means when people say like water quality area or like understanding sort of some of the details, policies and intricacies of water, water management, and why do we want to keep it on site or why do we not? Mm. So maybe some more of those types of things. But I think we're going to see more and more extreme climatic events. And I <laughs> did I just give away that I believe in climate change? Mm. Um, <laughs> but um, How's it go with your in-laws, family, right? <laughs> with friends? Yeah, Not well. But yeah, I think we're going to have to respond to some of those types of issues and I think we we already do a really good job of a lot of it. We just don't necessarily publicize or talk about it enough. And we really are like one of very, very few schools that are in an urban area and are so closely connected to so much of the mm. practice community. So it's really like I get to work with people and bringing practitioners together in a non-competitive environment mm -hmm. where they're championing our program and helping us figure out, I mean... We've had a great year with practitioners helping us with things. Like someone will say, hey, I know this person. They're coming to Denver. Can you find us a venue? And we're like, okay, we can we can make that work. Or we're hosting an 8x8 
mid-level landscape architects mm. on later this month because last year I organized one on women leaders in landscape right, architecture yeah, that was fun. and all of them said no one asked me to speak until I was in charge of things right yeah so this is mid-level and our ASLA Colorado Wyoming chapter along with some of their sponsors Anova and landscape forums and Tornasol are hosting a sort of networking reception mm. a sort of separate from the event but afterwards so they're helping they're really helping us and supporting us which is really cool so that's the fun part well fun you know i uh again it was so great to have you help us out for that summer event and uh when i was writing up your introduction for that event i saw that resume and i was like i need to talk to this person on the <laughs> podcast there's a lot going on here so Again, yeah, thanks for thanks for coming on. I know we've like rescheduled this about four different times with our kids or something, but uh, yeah, thanks for coming and thanks, thanks for sharing. Yeah. Cool. Thanks for having me. You can visit architecting.com, that's architect-ing.com to see images from this week's guest. And please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Have a great week and keep connecting. Eli, this show is made by my mom and dad and these people. Heidi Mendoza, Emily Child, Fernando Queiroz, Zach Huff, Trevor Notzko, Aaron Best, Kyle Brunner, Rob Cleary. All right, let's get a coffee. See ya. This is Sarah Hubbard, host of You and Me Kid, a podcast about starting and raising a family on your own. We just launched season two, and I'm speaking with single moms, those still considering, and experts in relevant fields to give you a real sense of what the day-to-day experience of solo parenting looks and feels like. Plus, this season, I've partnered with California Cryobank, the number one sperm bank in the U.S. So wherever you are in the process, this podcast provides some support, humor, and helpful information. Listen to You and Me Kid wherever you get your podcasts.